Can you talk us through your first visit with a new client who is a toddler? That was the first question that I asked my guest today on the Autism Outreach Podcast. And I think that her answer will surprise you. It is simplistic, but I think it's something that a lot of us are not yet doing, yet it's an amazing way to start a relationship with a client and a family. Welcome to the Autism Outreach Podcast. This is episode 115, and I am your host, Rose Griffin, a speech-language pathologist and BCBA here to support you in supporting your autistic learners. Today, I have a great conversation with Cindy Watson all about early intervention. Cindy is a fellow speech-language pathologist, and she is the co-founder of Children's Therapy team. She considers helping kids communicate to be one of her greatest passions in life. She also began teaching at the University of Arkansas, and she teaches classes on language development and language disorders. I got to know Cindy because she is a member of the ABA speech community, has taken some of our ASHA-approved courses, and was even our video ambassador this fall. So you may have seen Cindy over on my Instagram providing therapies of clinic in action. I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode. Let's get right on into it. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Well, thanks so much for joining us on episode 115. We have a great episode for you today. We have with us Cindy Watson. Thanks for joining us, Cindy. It's so great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I feel so honored. I've followed you for a couple of years. And so I just feel like I'm like, Ooh, I've had a good time. <laughs> I love it. Well, and we met Cindy because Cindy was in my orbit. She's part of the ABA speech community. I think you had taken a course or two and you've been a follower and I think you engaged on my content and I needed a some video ambassadors. We did a little project this past fall and you helped out with that. So it was nice. We hopped on a Zoom call, got to know more about you and your clinic and all the great work that you're doing in the field. So gosh, I'm excited for everybody just to learn more about you and all the great stuff that you're doing. So tell us a little bit about you know, how you got into the field, how you knew you wanted to be a speech therapist and, and what you're up to now for work. Um, well, that's a funny story um, because when I uh, came to college at the University of Arkansas, I was a communications major. Um, and I just thought, I don't, I can't even remember the 18 year old me, how I picked that, but I was like, well, I love talking. That's something on my report cards. I always got an N for talks, you know, talks too much, (laughs) talks out of turn, talks to her neighbors. So I was like, communications, that sounds great. I get to talk for a living. And then, um, I went home, um, from college and visited, And my dad said, what are you going to do with that major? And I was like, you know, I'm going to talk for a living. And he was like, and where are you going to do that? And I was like, you know, I'm not sure. (laughs) And so I started thinking and digging and um, 
I remembered I had a high school Sunday school teacher um, that I'm actually still in contact with very sporadically. And she was a speech language pathologist at a school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so my sophomore year, I reached out to her and I said, hey, what you do sounds fun. Can I come watch? And she was like, sure. So I went home. Um, it's only Tulsa is about a two hour drive from University of Arkansas. And I watched her and I was like, yeah, that looks fun. But then I was like, I'm going to call the big hospital. And I went there on spring break and I followed their speech language pathologist. And I was like, <laughs> this is it. This is what I want to do. Cause I know I love helping people. Um, I love talking. I love being able to communicate with others and I can't imagine not having a way to communicate. And so it's like, that's, you know, where my heart is every day is thinking about, Oh gosh, you know, these kids that I come in contact with helping them be able to communicate whatever that way is. Um, but anyway, so I I followed that speech pathologist, which crazy enough was all adults. Um, and that's what I loved. And then changed my degree, um, did clinical hours, fell in love with working with kids with special needs. Um, when I first was out of school, I did do a little bit with um, – in a rehab hospital, nursing home, like a PRN kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I love old people. And I, I mean, I'm so grateful for the speech language pathologists who work with them every day and the other professionals, but it got hard on my heart. Like I didn't realize like you lose patients <laughs> in that demographic. And I just am one, I get so attached to people that that was really hard on me. And so I was like, yeah, so I don't even do that PRN anymore. Um, I, you know, I have friends that do it and tell me about all the new wonderful things that are happening in that world. And I'm so grateful that they can do it. But my heart is, you know, right there with working with these kiddos and early intervention is, um, everything to me. It's actually what I did my master's thesis on was early intervention and parent involvement. Mm. Um, but I just, it's what I love and it's, it's so amazing to have a job that when you get up in the morning, it's it's not like, oh, I don't want to go to work because it's like <laughs> every day is a new day. I know that probably sounds corny to some people, but it really is. And there's always, you can always find one great thing that happened that day. Um, and so that's, that's how I fell into the world of speech language pathology. Um, and so I of course, finished my undergrad and my master's. And um, I worked in the public school system here for six years and then um, just decided to take a leap of faith and start a private practice. And so we've been around about 23 years and um, serve about 1,500 kids a week in the Northwest mm -hmm. Arkansas area, so that upper quadrant <laughs> of the world, and um, just love what I get to do, like I said, every day. It's um, it's truly amazing. That's great. I love that. And gosh, you're serving so many students. That's really Amazing. Yeah. And to take that leap of faith, now having my own business and doing this, I left the schools after 20 years in May to just focus on my family and to focus on ABA speech. So it's really 
it's really just been, I feel like I'm living my best life. So yeah. uh, I get to do stuff like this, you know, connect with you. And I'm excited to talk about early intervention because I can tell that you have such a passion for just helping others. Uh, but this age group, especially, and we, I get so many questions about early intervention. It seems to be anytime we do an episode about that, people really want to know. So I put together some questions uh, to, to ask you today about the topic of early intervention. And so the first one is, can you talk us through your first visit with a new client who is a toddler? What does that look like? Yeah. Um, well, obviously I'm older. Um, and so I do old school things, but I am a believer in making a phone call and reaching out to that parent or caregiver um, before I show up at their door or show up at the child's preschool or daycare. Or we do have some that come in the clinic. Um, so I just like to talk to them. I really, I like them to hear my voice and hear that I am passionate about helping their child. Number one, um, I want to know what concerns that they have. Um, maybe it was not their concern. Maybe it was a pediatrician's concern and talking through that and talking through developmental milestones. And maybe this is why, you know, maybe the doctor was thinking that not that maybe the doctor did that, but maybe sometimes just hearing it from a second person is helpful. Um, but I make that call. Um, so after the referral comes into our office and it gets handed off to the speech language pathologist and say, that's me, I'm going to call that mom, dad, or caregiver, whoever it is, and talk through those things, um, get some background information and then I feel like Key is asking them, what do they like? I want to show up with their favorite things. <laughs> I, um, we call it at our clinic, um, no disrespect to the males in the profession, um, but the fun aunt. I want to be the fun aunt. So if you're a male, you can be the fun uncle. But I want to show up and be the fun aunt with if it's Paw Patrol, if it's... Um, you know, whatever, whatever the common thing is right now, bluey or whatever, <laughs> and bring some of the favorite things. And then, of course, when I'm scheduling, I'm going to try to accommodate when that child, that's also a conversation that I've had with whoever I'm speaking, what, what time of day is best? Every kid's different, but typically that early intervention age before noon <laughs> is where I, I want to hang because it's like, there's no re reason to put all of us through the torture of a two o'clock evaluation for a two-year-old. I mean, mm -hmm. that's just not, doesn't even make sense to me. Um, so anyway, um, so we've had that conversation. I show up, I have my things that I have to get done. Um, and then I have the things that I know that they like. If it's something that maybe I don't have access to, I just ask the parent to have that available for me mm -hmm. and um, bring it out when I get there, um, whatever their favorite things are. And I just start with a lot of play and observation and, um, you know, having the parent sit right there with us. I will say when I was a younger you know, fresh out of school, uh, SLP, it was like scary to think about a parent sitting there watching my every move. And it took me a while to realize they're not really, you know, they're not really, they're watching their child. They're, they're wanting to take in anything that you can tell them that might help their child, that might help them understand their child. Or, um, you might give them some little nugget that would be great for working for them to work on at home. Um, 
And so have them join us, sit and play. And while we're playing, I can casually talk to the mom and get some of that social medical history. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have them fill out a form um, and get all that information. But I do like to talk through it because sometimes I'm a mom. I get it now. When I was first practicing, I wasn't. But mm-hmm. sometimes you go quickly through those forms and you may forget, oh, yeah, they, you know, that did happen or this did happen. And, you know, maybe it's not something that's terribly important, but it's good to know all the, all Mm -hmm. the information that you can have so that you can accurately assess that child. Um, So there's going to be some play. So some unstructured play. And then I try to work in the things that we have to get done, which is a standardized test, a criterion reference test, um, Mm -hmm. an oral peripheral exam, um, and I should backpedal a little bit here. When I have that phone conversation with the parent to set up the appointment, I talk about hearing. If mm-hmm. hearing has not been recently assessed, um, I like to get one of those in um, before I show up to do the evaluation. Um, so if it's already been done, then we just move along. We just wait for them to get that done mm-hmm. um, wherever they can. Um, so I always like to make sure that hearing happens. So I have it to document on my evaluation. So not something that, um, I know in some states, speech language pathologists have access to audio audiometers and things and can do like a screening. That's not something that we have here. So I'm trying to think with my own three kids, I'm here in Ohio. I feel like maybe that was part of our doctor's visits for well checks, but I can't exactly remember like if they were toddlers so that yeah that's important i'm sure that that appointment could be hard for some students and that's going to be really dependent probably on your state too where you can get that because i think in ohio at least from how i remember it but who knows because i have three kids and i was working so i it's all it's all a blur but i feel like maybe they tried to do that in the doctor's offices when the kids were little so yeah Yeah. that's that's good to know about and yeah, they here I was I have two as well. I don't remember them ever doing it, but we didn't. But both of mine had ear issues. Oh. And so um one had tubes. So post the procedure, they did a hearing evaluation, you know, pre and post. And so that may be why they weren't done as they knew that we were an ENT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, the hearing. And then um, so during that assessment, I like to explain to the parents because I feel like, like I said, becoming a parent, I realize now when I was not, I was I didn't understand that sometimes things are a little nerve wracking. And so when I'm sitting there and writing, taking notes and documenting I'll even, you know, say, hey, you know, by this age, we want, you know, he's one, we'd like him to have one word, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and kind of just explain to them what we're watching for. Mm -hmm. And I've had good feedback from parents to say, you know, that helps me know what what we need to work on, what we need to do. And, um, or by this age, we would want them to be able to identify their colors or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. using pronouns correctly. Um, But instead of just sitting there writing, and so it's like a constant communication between myself and the parent. And sometimes they do have to report on things because I can't necessarily elicit it or observe it. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you. So what does, so your assessment process, what types of tests do you like 
to give for that for the younger for younger students? What are your go to assessments? Well, I could probably give the preschool language scale in my sleep. <laughs> um, and and I don't mind that one. I feel like it's a good comprehensive where and comprehensive meaning you get the receptive and the expressive side. Um, we use a lot. We use the real a lot um, in the clinic and outside the clinic, but with our practice, I should say. Um, I am. Um, I teach at the University of Arkansas, and my students know I'm like Dr. Luis Rossetti's biggest fan. Oh yeah, I want to start a fan club with, <laughs> um, with merch. Um, I saw him speak twice, and mm. he is amazing. But I love to use his criterion reference, the mm -hmm. Rossetti infant and toddler scales. So that will be like if I went in and assessed a child, probably what I would use would be the preschool language scale and the Rosetti and the oral mech, um, just depending on the kid. Um, sometimes we'll use the expressive one words. Um, we kind of, in our practice, call them the EO and the RO. I don't know if everybody else in the world calls them that. Um, but I'm trying to think of um, any other ones. That's pretty much what we use. Um, like I said, the preschool language, we actually have, you know, multiples in our clinic because that one's a, it's like, it's always going mm -hmm. that commodity. Um, so, um, and then there's always the functional communication profile or checklist because some kids, mm -hmm. you know, that's not an appropriate, um, test for them, a standardized test and that's okay. Um, or, you know, a communication checklist or something like that. Have you used the functional communication profile, the preschool edition? I haven't used it. I do a lot of training. Now I've actually, I have other team members that are seeing clients one-on-one -on -one because I'm just so busy with training and CEUs yeah. and all those things. So I, right. I use the functional communication profile revised, but I have never used the preschool edition. And when I was doing one of my trainings, somebody said, oh, there's a preschool edition. So now I've been including that on some of my talks to just build awareness that that's a nice instrument out there. But have you used it? I just haven't used it. I just wonder if you I guys have, have ever used, used it. it. Okay. I yeah. It. I'll have, I definitely am intrigued. I'll have to look into it. Yeah. It looks really nice. I looked it up online. I also like the Rossetti and I am doing, I'm licensed in Washington and Oregon. So I'm doing some SLPA supervision, doing a little bit of assessment, helping some people out. And we use the Rosetti and I had never used it before. And I really, I liked that for really little ones. It goes to about three-ish or something yeah. like that. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. it's for the itty bitties. <laughs> yes. I thought that, that was good. Good information yeah. too. Um, so in general, just kind of generally speaking for students who are maybe not yet speaking or, and I, I think that's, you know, one year I just did preschool and I really Love that. I definitely love working with all ages, actually. I know it seems kind of cheesy to say, like, I like your, I like you because you like being a speech therapist. And I can tell that. I feel the same way. Sometimes I'll be on a podcast and people will be like, well, what do you do when you had a hard day? And I'm usually like, well, I didn't have a hard day because of a client. I had a hard day because of all the other stuff or the all the other people I had to deal with. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, Amen. Amen. <laughs> yes. But so what, what are some of the foundational skills that you target? So for kids who are not yet speaking, you know, in general, because I feel like when kids are that young, there's just a whole variety of reasons why they may not be speaking. They might have a delay. They might have autism. It may just be something where you see them, you know, for speech therapy and then 
they don't even qualify for services. I've had all those experiences. I'm sure you have too. So in general, what are some foundational skills if people are listening and their students are not yet speaking that we could kind of start circulating in our head like, oh, this might be helpful for this student? Yeah. Um, This may sound silly, but sometimes it's just the cause and effect of communication. Like I use this gesture and mom gave me juice you know, like they're helping them understand how those things go together. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of what along the way I gave it that name, you know, it's like a cause and effect toy. I push this button and it lights up or plays music. Same thing with communication, whatever their mode of communication is, they use it and they get a response. And so is that there? Is that piece there? So that's sometimes where we start, depending on the child. And if it's, like I said, gestures, pictures, whatever that may be, maybe it's, you know, close word approximations, but it's always the same thing for milk or whatever. Um, That's a good foundational skill. And just getting the parents to respond to that and say, oh, you want your juice, you know, and reinforce that with their speech. Um, Or, you know, oh, I see you're telling me you want juice. Because sometimes, and I've been that parent, it's like, it's just real quick to go, oh, yeah, they want juice. Here's your juice, (laughs) you know, and not, and not even say anything. So, and I've had parents tell me that, especially parents of kids with hearing loss, you know, they feel like, well, they don't hear me. Why am I using words? Well, you have a point, but we don't know what the residual hearing is like. We don't know what visual information they're getting. But so I kind of back, you know, put that in the back of my mind as like always just reinforcing um, what, what the child is trying to communicate to us with our words. Um, so that's a good foundational skill. Obviously, gestures, very important. You talked about it several times. Um, joint attention, you know, is so important because therapy is sitting down and have, you know, having a shared interest. Um, and so whatever you can make that. Um, and then, of course, um we always, I feel like a lot, a good place we start is animal sounds, environmental sounds, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So just building on those developmental milestones, you know, kind of go back and see, okay, where, where did they leave off? That's probably where we should pick up mm-hmm. and go from there. Yeah, I love that. And I just did a milestones talk. And when this comes out, I'm going to try to put that up on the website as a self-paced course. So I did this one hour ASHA approved an ACE event and anybody can take it. Parents can take it too. And it was about milestones. I had, I'm very nerdy and I really love what I do. So I love to put together these slide decks. And I just used videos of my own kids that were, you know, my kids are typical language learners. So I had videos of my own children at the different milestone marks and kind of what communication looks like at that point when it's a typical language learner. And We know that everybody develops language differently, but I do think sometimes it's good for people, especially like you said, when I'm sure you're a different therapist now versus before when you didn't have your own kids. I think sometimes we just, depending on our work environment, we might even not have models of what a typical language learner looks like or how language is typically developed. And I remember before I had kids working in a preschool and it was a bunch of three-year-olds and I was like, 
oh my goodness, these kids are so smart. It's so sophisticated. Okay, yeah. now I'm going to go to the art table. So that means I have to match my icon and get my little smock on. And, yeah. you know, there's all these rules for that. But if you go to the play area, you have to do this. And I was just amazed at how much kids know at that age and how sophisticated even social language skills are as far as like entering a center. I remember we had a student and we did video modeling. I was so proud of this. I still like to talk about it. So I had a kid who had autism and he was conversational and he wanted to play with certain friends and he was having a hard time. So we would go down and we would, I took a video of a student entering a circle time or a, um, you know, a station. And I took a video of that, how he just asked, like, can I play with you? And it was very organic and just natural. And then I would show it to my student before we went down to the classroom and it worked. <laughs> you know, It was like, I'm always amazed. I know these things have a lot of research yeah. behind them, but if you haven't tried video modeling, it actually works. And <laughs> the research says it does, but it's kind of neat to see those things in action or, you know, yeah. you go to a conference, you hear about something, you take the next step and you implement it into your therapy. I think that's what's so hard about CEUs and learning. I try not to overload people on strategies they can use and just try to make it something that you can immediately take action on. And I think that's how we just kind of become better clinicians are just learning these things or reading that article and trying it. And I love that I, you're doing that. I totally agree with what what you say about your trainings. That's what I love is like their little snippets. It's not, and it's also... I think we, after we've been practicing a while, we, our attention span gets to like 30 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> and like, so it's like these little doable chunks or a neat little tool to put in our little toolbox or to share with a family, like try this when you do brown bear, brown bear, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I love that. I love that. So you mentioned parents. So what does parent involvement look like during your therapy sessions. Give us an idea of that. Yeah. Um, well, when we do early intervention in our state, we're required <laughs> to have the parents sit with us and mm. train them because we're we're supposed to train them to do it. We typically only get to visit them once a week in the state of Arkansas. Um, sometimes we get a little more, but typically once a week. And then we're supposed to train the parents um, mm. to do the therapy beyond that. Um, and so just getting them involved and feeling comfortable, like I said, you know, um, getting their child to imitate, modeling things for them um, and just you know, or even just like for me to say, Hey, I like the way you did that. That was perfect. You know, um, when you showed him how to do the sign for milk or whatever. Um, so those kinds of things. Um, so I just like to have them there and be talking through the process and what they can do to help their child communicate when I'm not there. Um, and so I just think that gives them such a sense of empowerment. Um, cause I think sometimes it's just like this huge task that they're like, Oh, I can't do that. You know? Um, and then sometimes it's talking about reinforcing behaviors and, you know, what kind of reinforcers they like and, attention span. I find a lot of parents think, you know, they're supposed to sit there for 20 minutes. No, I mean, if they're three or under, I mean, they usually say general rule is a minute per year of age, you know, for an attention mm -hmm. span. And so 
just kind of giving them those little nuggets of like, it's okay. Cause I'll have parents all the time be like, I'm sorry that they're running off to go get another toy. It's like, <laughs> be sorry, don't be sorry. Like, um, and they're like, you do this all day. Like, How do you not do this? Don't you just want to make them sit down? I'm like, no, not really. Cause I know what happens if I do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then we get nowhere fast. Wow. So, I would imagine as a new speech therapist, if I was needing to work that closely with parents that I would probably need some support and how to train parents and how to, it's almost like a trainer of trainers model. I've done that with CEUs where we have a, a, a renowned expert come into the district when I lived in Austin and then she would train us. And then the, the goal was that she would eventually phase out. And then yeah. we, as the admin, I was an autism specialist. We, as the admin would be able then to train the teachers, the speech therapists in this 35 school district. So I understand that idea, but I would imagine that's kind of daunting for new speech therapists because that was one of the things too. I remember I actually liked working with adults too when I first got out before I got into helping autistic learners. I also worked at a nursing home and voice clients and all of this until I found autism, but I always felt young and unsure of (laughs) what I was doing. And even with parents too, sometimes I don't feel this way anymore because I have my own kids and I feel like what I'm doing, I'm trying to help. But I feel like when you're new to the field or even just new to working with parents and younger kids, that can be really overwhelming to try to help support parents. I feel like imposter syndrome might might creep in. Do you find that for your staff that are yeah. younger? That might be Yeah, hard. I do. I mean, it's funny that you say that because we have a mentor program when people come to work at team. Um, it was basically for our PTs and OTs, it was modeled off of the CFY year for mm-hmm. pathologists because um, the other owner of the practice or the other founder of the practice is a PT. And she was always like, that's so cool that you guys do that CFY year. Why don't we do it? And I was like, well, girl, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so we do that, but like in that mentor program, we try to do that in that CFY year, you know, use that time to establish that confidence. Um, it is interesting. Cause like I said, at the beginning, I'm very old school and calling the parents and wanting to have that conversation before we meet in person. And I find that with, um, the younger clinicians, they, you know, and it's okay. That's why we have an office staff, but we'll have them call and set up the appointment and they'll make that first meeting, their first meeting. And I'm like, Oh, you know, like <laughs> for me, I would feel like a fish out of water, mm-hmm. but it works for them. But I think it's just like that confidence comes over time. I can remember back 27 years ago, you know, going to my first IEP meeting and thinking, Oh, I hope I say the right thing. I hope I don't say the wrong thing, you know? Um, and so I think it's something that you do just learn over time, but we can support them when we use their CFY year, or maybe they come to us after a CFY year, Mm -hmm. they can still have that mentor with them. And maybe we just let them start with one, you know, Mm -hmm. just one EI child, because maybe they need to do that research on their own, you know, and so I don't want to give them a whole caseload of early intervention kids or whatever child whatever the diagnosis is. Mm-hmm. So we do try to closely watch the caseloads that we give um, our therapists too, because we want to ha- empower them mm-hmm. to learn that information, but offer that support. So offering that support could look like just monitoring their caseload so that they can offer the right amount of attention to certain children. Oh, I love that. And I love the idea of the mentoring program because I was actually at a ABA conference and Linda LeBlanc is 
just this really famous BCBA who does all these keynotes and talks. And she was talking about, or maybe it was Marianne Weiss. I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about the CFY year that we have as speech therapists. That's your clinical fellowship year where you have a mentor SLP and there's some documentation and visits and uh, logistics that need to be taken. But I always thought that might be nice for BCBAs. And who knows? I mean, I feel like BCBAs, it's such a new profession, comparatively speaking, to some other more established professions that have been around a lot longer that we could maybe get into something like that. Because I do think that, and everybody has a different CFY experience, and you do get paid your regular salary and all those types of things. But I do think it is nice to have that mentor, that person that is there to support you and answer questions. Because when you're new to everything, I remember looking back at my first year, like, lesson plans or soap notes or whatever I was trying to do. And you're like, oh my gosh, this was, was I, what was I doing? I was trying, but you just have to kind of get your foot in the door and just get out there and explore. Right. So I I love that you're doing that kind of in-house. Dip your toe in the water. Um, I should say we have BCBAs as well. And, um, and we do let them mentor, you know, new Mm -hmm. BCBAs. So anybody that's new to team, has a mentor experience, it just may be shorter because if you come into it's very seasoned, mm-hmm. you, may not need, you may need it for just learning the team way, as mm-hmm. we call that. Um, but yes, it it has really been a huge benefit of our program, I feel like. And we find out from people that we hire, that's one of the reasons that they want to come to team is because they like that mentor piece. I love so that. yeah. Very cool. So the last question I have today is what are your top three favorite therapy materials for this age group? Because I think that's one of my favorite things about talking either in person or virtually is opening up the chat and having people dialogue about what song they love or what book they love or what toy they love. So tell us what three toys you really love for younger learners. Um, I have to say number one, and you probably know this from the video that I submitted. I love bubbles. Everybody loves bubbles. I don't care what age you are. You know, they, they typically love bubbles. Um, I even use them, you know, when I'm volunteering in the church nursery, but, um, I actually had a a little guy start calling me bubbles because he thought he made that association. He paired me so hard with those bubbles. (laughs) I became bubbles. So that family still calls me bubbles. And I love that. Um, But you can do so much with them. And it's so fun and inexpensive. I always try to think of that because we do have an area of our state where we have a lot of people um, who don't have a lot of extra who are in the lower socioeconomic class. Mm -hmm. And so Bubbles are easy. You can make them if you need to. And Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say bubbles. I've become more into books probably um, than I've ever been in the last couple of years. Um, I love them if they have a pattern um, because then it's like a song (laughs) and the kids feel so successful and to see their little face light up if they like brown bear, brown bear is probably the top of my list. But Mm -hmm. when they can name the animals, um, it's like, you know, they think they're reading and like that confidence just skyrockets. Um, and then as far as anything else, I tend to lean towards because I do travel so much, anything that doesn't need a battery. So blocks or um, there's some spinny toys by that fat brain toys, I think is what it's called. 
um, where it spins. There's no batteries to it because it Mm. never fails. If I get something (laughs) with a battery, it's going to die and I'm going to be away (laughs) from my stash. And I I guess I haven't been smart enough to put extra batteries in my car at this point. But um, anything like that. Um, So that would be my tip to everybody. And I I tell my students to start cruising the aisles of Dollar Tree, yes. <laughs> picking up stuff. Because I said, then, you know, then if a kiddo loves it, you can leave it. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's a dollar. Now it's a dollar twenty-five. You know, mm-hmm. and I can get another one. Um, but that would be my thing is just that kind of of stuff. But bubbles and books are up there, and then any of those good old fashioned toys. So. Yeah. I love that. And I had um, Emily from Tandem Therapy. She We had met on Instagram maybe five years ago. She's done a lot of different webinars for us. She was on a podcast season one. She talks about that too. Her whole platform is all about play. She's a speech therapist, but she talks about having toys that don't re- require batteries. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But from like a straight logistical point from you traveling and going different places, it makes wow. a lot of sense. And from the uh, standpoint of it being affordable too and being interactive. There's just so many, if we just kind of revisit those types of toys, we can get so much engagement out of those. So I think that is a great idea. Probably toys that we have laying around that maybe we haven't even used in a while. I think that's great. It's interesting in our state, one of the rules of early intervention, if you're going into the home, which if they are in the early intervention program, you're supposed to see them in their natural environment. Um, So a lot of times that's home. It could be here like I'm in this preschool right now. but we are not even to bring a bag in. Oh, is it bagless? Are you guys a bagless state? We're I've heard to of be this. A bagless state. Bagless so, state. Um, okay. So if I take something in, I know that I could leave it for a while because right um, because we were given grant money. Um, okay buy toys. Mm-hmm. And the purpose behind that too is like, if you go into a home, you can leave it for a period of time so that parent can continue working mm-hmm. on those skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, it's sometimes it's kind of refreshing just to walk in with my keys mm-hmm. and my phone and, <laughs> uh, and, and start perusing the toy room at their house. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're supposed to be bagless because I guess that goes with the whole philosophy of what our state has chosen to do is the parents are to carry over what we are doing in therapy the rest of the time when we're not there. Okay. And so if you're bringing in all these flashy toys mm-hmm. and you're taken away, how are they supposed to continue that? Um, so yeah. Okay. Interesting. Guys, I've heard that in early intervention circles bagless. And I didn't, I don't know if Ohio is like that because I haven't done specifically early intervention where I had a specific funding source. It was all private pay. So probably a little bit different. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. I've always been curious about that. So such good information today. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they find you? Um, well, I am one of the founders of children's therapy team. Like I said, we're located in Northwest Arkansas. Our um, main clinic is in Fayetteville. Um, We have a website. It's www.childrenstherapyteam, all spelled out, all lowercase, no apostrophe, dot com. Um, We're also on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, and um, you know, I'm also out there, Cindy Watson, on both, and I'm usually sharing a lot of speech 
stuff. I'm very interested. If I ever go back to school, I'd love to become a BCBA. I've learned so much from our BCBAs, things I wish I would have known 27 years ago. <laughs> um, but I'm sharing behavior stuff, speech stuff, and team stuff, typically. A little bit about my family in there. But, um yeah, reach out to us. And um, my email is the same, uh, not the same, but similar. Uh, Cindy, C-I-N-D-Y, all lowercase, dot Watson, W-A-T-S-O-N, at children's team, like a football team, dot com. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was really ga- great to have you on. Yeah, thank you. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.